Let me tell you what this political movement is about. Jobs and growth for all Australians. On jobs and growth. Have great jobs. Economic growth. Strong growth. More jobs. When they go low, we go high. So I'm seeing in my mind something very similar with this bill to a colonoscopy. Let me just stop you so you don't waste a line of questioning. I'm just giving you... I love the mansplaining. I would build a great wall and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. Please clap. Please clap. This is Represent. 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 On Sid Nation. Good afternoon. You're listening to Represent on Sid Nation. I'm Natasha. I'm Declan. And I'm Julia. Welcome to another episode of Represent, the Hour of Politics. Today we'll be discussing the effect of political memes and what they have on debate. If the war on drugs is doing more harm than good, we'll be talking about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's arrival in Australia and the Fair Work Commission's decision to cut Sunday penalty rates. Don't forget, you can get involved too. Send us a tweet to at SinRepresent or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash represent. We'll be putting up polls on our Facebook page this episode, so get your like, heart, happy, sad, wow and angry reacts at the ready. Before we get into it, we're going to go to a song. This is Angel Olsen with Shut Up and Kiss Me. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. And you just heard Angel Olsen with Shut Up and Kiss Me. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. Memes and internet culture are becoming more than fun and games. They are becoming a serious part of political expression. How about that? Um, I... (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Anyway, so I I spoke with a freelance writer, cultural critic and resident meme lord, um, Alex Griffin, about the rise of the political meme. Um, Here come dat interview. (laughs) That literally happened. Memes are becoming a big part of political dialogue and expression online. Why do you think this is so? Um, Well, any history of the net or people in general will tell you that people are very good at forming communities um, with whatever resources are available to them and then also having conflicts between those communities as well. But I think the rise of it has a lot to do with the fact that it's fundamentally a fun activity. Humour, as we sort of maybe saw a lot in the lead-up to the last election, is becoming a really political um, tool, a really key political tool, far more than it was in previous times. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that in late capitalism, so much of us are expecting to have fun all the time. Uh, A big part of meme culture is the idea that um, it's creating a sense of shared relief through the joke. And that's become yeah, a really crucial political tool at the same time. So it's really a combination of those two factors, I think. How do you think the emergence and popularisation of internet memes is changing politics in real life? I'm wary of uh, speaking of it in terms of causation because memes both reflect and change what's happening uh, in the real world. And what we need to really be looking at, I think, is consider what reflections are taking in place and then how that in turn impacts real life. I, I think a really important example of this is on um, pages like left nihilist memes and um, other ones that are very like down about the fact that the world is ending 
and the fact that there is a real movement in sort of leftist memes towards irony, um, the acceptance that everything's ending, the sense of helplessness, and in right-wing memes there's this real polarisation um, of how, uh, you know, like taking things by force, of strength, of um, valorising white men who are generals, that kind of thing. It, it's, ch it's changing politics in the same sense that it's reflecting it. it. It's sort of like a real by real flash photography, instant uh, snapshot of what people are thinking and what ideas they're unifying around. And I think that's just only going to increase in polarisation. Political right, which are a group that were, they sort of grew out of the internet. They were once considered just internet trolls that weren't worth, you know, thinking too much about. But now alt-right figures such as Steve Bannon are affecting politics directly, i.e. they are advising uh, President Trump mm -hmm. right now. What do you think this says about the future of online political discourse? Yeah, I think that's a really important subject, maybe like the key subject for... Um, media and communications and internet theorists at the moment. Um, someone suggested to me jokingly the other day that a future Republican candidate is already like on 4chan posting and um, as, as funny as that thought is, I think it's also true. Um, I, I don't think we've begun to comprehend the changes in psychology and group psychology and political psychology that the internet is producing. The fact that um, yeah, people who are ultimately purveyors of, of different forms of information um, that is, you know, old facts or, or post-truth or, or um, whatever the term is that you like, um, are becoming um, really key in our political discourses. Like, say, in Australia, we have people like Malcolm Roberts and Pauline Hanson, um, whose who's rise this time has been very different to what it was 20 years ago, and I think we need to be aware, alive to those differences. Um, the, the future of online political discourse, I think, is going to become more and more central, but I think the impact of people who are um, responding um, will be um, less and less impactful unless they're also reflecting that demonstration on the state, on the streets and at the ballot box as well. Politicians who, and when I say politicians, I mean like traditional politicians who have, I guess, use memes and capitalise on them. I reckon like last year Sam Dastyari, you know, really got into the HSP memes. Um, people who I guess aren't digital natives, maybe older politicians getting in on the wave of memes. What do you think that means? Um, yeah, I think it's really fascinating also um, in terms of uh, yeah, Dastyari is, is a really important case study in this, um, especially considering how um, complex he is as a, a politician um, for his various uh, stances, um, which are very at odds with the kind of um, very warm and fuzzy kind of uh, HSP meme, um, Sam Dastyari. Um, when these uh, politicians who, as you know, aren't digital natives enter the sphere, it's, um, it's always a question of credibility. Um, <clears throat> if <clears throat> they're obviously reaching, as Sam was, then people struggle to identify with that beyond a point. Um, and I think it's, it's challenging because people want, especially younger audiences who are most attuned to memes, they want to see memes that are coming from people they kind of identify with, that the, the sphere isn't being colonized by people who are using it for another purpose. They still want the meme to be fundamentally funny second and then something else after that. And if that order is transposed, like, say, when someone like Dastyari or, or say, if um, Tony Abbott started getting into the meme game, then people are instantly suspicious of that because the laugh isn't the end of the of of the uh, meme itself. 
That was Alex Griffin speaking there. Um, you're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. Are political memes dank or are they for normies? We want to hear your thoughts. Participate in our Facebook emoji poll on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash sinrepresent. You can also share your, your thoughts with us on Twitter with um, our Twitter handle at sinrepresent. It's time for another song. This is Frank Ocean with Forrest Gump. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. That was Frank Ocean with Forrest Gump, and this is the Hour of Politics with Represent on Sin Nation. So earlier this week on Thursday, the Fair Work Commission announced changes to weekend penalty rates. Um, So retail workers will no longer receive double time on Sundays. They would uh, receive time and a half. Uh, Casual workers would receive time and three quarters, and fast food workers would receive time and a half. The Fair Work Commission says that these changes will lead to more jobs, longer trading hours on Sundays and public holidays. Um, And this decision comes from a Productivity Commission report last year, which made recommendations that bringing down the penalty rates would um, help more unemployed people find work and that it was just archaic and old. But there's been a lot of opposition to the changes. So what do you guys think of slashing the penalty rates? I think it's... I don't know. I mean, I, I guess you, you just have to you have to sit back and, and wait for something to happen. I mean, like the cynic in me is like, oh, this is obviously the liberals like heavy giving a hand to um, businesses and that kind of thing. But at the same time, yeah, it could create some more jobs. Who knows? Who can possibly say? It's um, uh, I feel really conflicted about this because I I feel like it is always a horrible thing when workers, particularly young workers who work really unsociable hours, um, get paid less. However, like it is a bit bizarre that people were being paid double um, on sun on Sundays, and I feel like Sunday trading is now much more commonplace, much more normal. Um, so it's hard because I feel really upset about people being paid less, but at the same time, like maybe maybe penalty. Like I agree that people need to be paid more for these jobs because you know if you're talking about um, working in the bar, you know sometimes that involves cleaning up vomit. Sometimes that involves dealing with drunken patrons and you know really not great things that people you know need to be compensated for. And I do feel like they need to be paid more. But I'm not necessarily sure if penalty rates is the way to do it. Maybe we need if we're going to get rid of penalty rates, maybe we need to like increase wages. Well, yeah, that would be great. So stop, so stop like making Sunday such a special day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I think that it affects the most vulnerable workers, like young people who, as you said, can only work on weekends. Um, and it also, like, the changes come under those who are um, a part of the four industry awards, so hospitality, retail, fast food, and pharmacy workers. So that's... You know, a lot of young people there who um, have school during the week and then weekends is their time yeah, for pay. So. Exactly. Um, and like, it, yeah, and I guess this is what makes me feel conflicted because um, a lot of people say, you know, um, my rates on Sunday is the thing that makes, makes sure that I can pay my rent or, um, you know, pay bills and whatnot. And I, I obviously, like, 
while I do kind of think it's a bit bizarre that people were being paid double on Saturday, uh, not Saturday, Sundays, um, when I feel like Sunday isn't as unsociable as it perhaps it might have used to be when, you know, Sunday was traditionally you go to church and mm. that's, you know, you don't trade. Um, but at the same time, you know, I feel like, you know, if you're, pe- if you're earning another $50 per hour or something like that or $50 per night, I feel like they still need to get that pay I just like maybe it's not through penalty rates, maybe it's through um, a wage increase. So the Greens have um, announced that they will introduce legislation to block the ruling uh, made by the Commission. So I guess we'll see what happens. Um, but many companies and businesses have announced that they won't be taking part in these changes. Um, making posts on Facebook and yep. various social media channels like Lush Australia, uh, a Brisbane Bistro called Delfina's and Hobart's The Hairy Giraffe Cafe. So they've been saying stuff like, we're really proud to support our staff for the wonderful work they do. So I guess it comes down. I think also like, yeah, again, like um, I feel like there are certain workplaces where like I feel like a lot of the push to get rid of um, penalty rates seems to be very much a rural issue because they want to employ, like the the like what um, a lot of small business owners in rural areas have been saying, it's like we want to employ more people, but we can't do that if we're paying penalty rates. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there are many more businesses that aren't small businesses, like businesses like Lush that are international companies um, who are like, well, actually, you know, it's not really hard. It's not like it's going to um, stop our business from profiting, stop people from, you know, being able to be employed by us if we pay penalty rates. So I feel like, you know, um, there will be jobs or particular, like, workplaces that are like, well, we can still pay you at the same rate because, you know, we are, we are a bigger business or, you know, we think that you deserve it. Like, I could imagine a lot of bars being like, well, actually, maybe, yeah, you you know, you're more likely to deal with drunk people. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll pay you more. Yeah. You also, you, also that you mentioned um, rural areas. The other thing is that a lot of country towns and that kind of thing, I, I mean, in the city... You know, you see a lot of 24-hour stores and that kind of thing, things that are open um, around the clock. But in in more regional rural areas, it still is a case of things closed down on Sunday or even the Saturday. Um, I don't mean any offence to people of Launceston by this. I do love your <laughs> your city. Uh, <laughs> city. I went there and it was a Saturday and... It was it was like afternoon and everything was shut. Like mm. it was in the main mall and that kind of thing. It was just so you know. In in there's plenty of places um, you know outside the capital cities that um, if if you do work on the weekend, it is still an extraordinary thing. Yeah. But some people who are small business owners have said, and I I mean I don't really know what to make of it, but they've said like they would consider you know being open seven days if they didn't have to pay penalty rates. So like that's that's where it's like hmm maybe maybe they'll actually you know open up on those days, and at the same time it does seem a little bit bizarre that they wouldn't open on those days though it is a little bit yeah. interesting. So I'm, I mean like I don't really know what to think on that, but you this know is both sides pros and cons for both. Yeah, yeah. definitely balance. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, are you affected by penalty rates and the uh, Fair Work Commission's changes? Let us know. Um, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash sinrepresent or send us a tweet at sinrepresent. We're now going to go to Drew Barrymore by Scissor.
That was Scissor. That was Scissor with Drew Barrymore. Report. Uh, ah. Reportage of mass overdoses across the nation are being mentioned in the media at a seemingly higher rate, highlighting an important issue regarding a larger drug culture in Australia. But if it is a war on drugs, is the government doing enough to combat the threat of drug-induced overdoses? Represent reporter Maria Dunn looked into the rise of overdoses and spoke to Dr Nicole Lee from the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University about government policy and tackling the war on drugs. Australian legislators have been making strict policy about the use of drugs since the 1930s, but it has been questioned yet again due to the mass overdose at White Night last week. 21 people were taken to hospital after taking synthetic versions of GHB, a number that the Greens stated could have been prevented. What we've got is a system where we direct all our resources towards individual drug users and putting them through the criminal justice system. And what we're saying is, rather than doing that, of course, we need to keep going after people who supply drugs, the dealers, but when it comes to individual drug users, let's channel some of that money into treatment, into rehabilitation, into social supports. And that's not just our view, it's the view that we... But some politicians oppose this due to the fear that this action will endorse drug use. Australia has a history of drugs being a political issue. In the 1960s, mass changes to drug laws came into action due to the single Convention on Narcotic Drugs. The convention ended with psychoactive drugs and cannabis being considered as harmful as heroin or cocaine. This cited the 1967 Narcotic Drugs Act, which allowed people to be arrested for having drug paraphernalia, cultivation and possession. These laws are still in force today. Today, many politicians support tighter measures on drug use in Australia, but as 41.8% of Australians aged 14 years and over have used illicit drugs in their lifetime, is it really working? Australians have been similarly concerned that methamphetamines were the illicit drugs to be the most concerned to the community, and programs such as ABC Ice Wars show that concern. Academics such as Professor Nicole Lee of the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University says the use of ice as an epidemic in ice wars sensationalises methamphetamines for the TV audience. Most of the media coverage um, about ice in the last few years has been, has been quite um, not only sensationalised but very exaggerated. Mm. Um, uh, it's, it's only telling a part of the story and which is... Not a problem in itself, but if you only tell part of the story, then the community believes that is the whole story. The way that the story is being told is in uh, a very sensationalist way. Um, it's really focused on aggression and psychosis. So, are we missing the point of why these laws were created in the first place? Nicole Lee explains. Stigma um, and stigmatisation of people who use ice and, and other drugs. And what we know about stigmatisation is that if people feel um, ashamed or stigmatised, and they're much less likely to ask for help, and that's kind of the opposite of what we want to happen. These policies created by the government has also done some good. For instance, the government spent $150 million on drug prevention programs between 1988 and 2000, preventing an estimated 21,000 HIV infections and 25,000 hepatitis C infections. The program saved 
45,000 lives that would have been claimed by AIDS and 90 by hepatitis C. That was Represent reporter Maria Dunn with our report on Australian drug culture. Remember, you can join the discussion and let us know what you think by sending us a tweet to at SinRepresent or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash represent. You can also take part in our many polls featured on our Facebook page throughout the show. Like, heart, happy, sad, wow or angry reacts only. So the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu landed in Australia this week, prompting a surge of mixed opinion and protest toward his government governance. Although the Prime Minister has been in reportedly cordial talks with the Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and the opposition leader Bill Shorten, the visit was has not been without controversy. Most notably, the opposition toward Prime Minister Netanyahu has come from members of the Jewish community who are at odds with the actions of the Israeli government. So um, it's a historic visit to Australia by a serving Israeli Prime Minister. And while he's here, he has signed uh, with Malcolm Turnbull an air service agreement to promote travel between Australia and Israel and also agreeing to bilateral cooperations on technological innovation, research and development. But um, a lot of protesters have gathered at Sydney's town hall, around a thousand people who have protested the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine and Israel's refusal to recognise Palestine as an independent state, um, also protesting Israeli settlements on Palestinian land. Uh, last year, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu passed a law which legalises around 4,000 settler homes on Palestinian land. Um, so many countries around the world have condemned um, Netanyahu's actions and the United Nations has condemned his actions, calling it illegal. Um, but what do you guys think of his historic visit to our great land. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's it's complicated. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I follow I follow Heretz, which is a um, I guess a, a probably more of a liberal, so little L liberal Israeli um, newspaper, and um, it's really interesting to see from that perspective that there is a lot of um, anger around Netanyahu um, within Israel itself. Um, so he has been like there's been issues of corruption or alleged corruption um, on his part, and a lot of people are very concerned about that, as well as um, ongoing conflict between Palestine. Um, and I think um, it's really it's really difficult, I think, for other countries to know what to do with Israel. Um, so you know, obviously, uh, the UN have has spoken out against. Um, the increase of settlements, um, say, saying that that's illegal, um, but at the same time, you know, people don't know how to condemn Israel or if they can condemn Israel, um, and and that's also a bit of a, a bit of a, um, I guess, a diplomatic minefield, mm-hmm. <laughs> in one of a better term. Um, so I feel like. I mean, if I could go into opinion, um, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of think it's um, it's, uh, I guess, irresponsible for a country. Um, so I think it's irresponsible that we aren't, you know, being a little bit critical about um, what Israel is doing. I mean, Bill Shorten has started to do it a little bit, but. Um, I feel well, like, he's spoken yeah. with him about it, yeah, about the two-state solution. Exactly. So. Um, I feel like, you know, 
with other countries that we we work with and we trade with, sometimes we can say, yeah, um, your human rights record isn't that great. Um, You know, we're like that with China. We're like that with Indonesia. Why aren't we like that with Israel? Yeah. you know, it doesn't. That doesn't necessarily like you know being critical of very serious um, allegations of human rights abuse isn't um, being unfriendly. And so, what would you think of like um, in regards to the United Nations condemning Israel? Malcolm Turnbull has defended Israel, um, saying that Australia's Australia has disassociated itself from the UN resolution because it attributed fault only to the state of Israel. I mean, do you think that's like a productive thing to say? I think that that's a case of uh, Turnbull. I, I think it's a case of Turnbull sort of moving to the right in in, in order to like appease both his more conservative colleagues and also Trump. Um, I looked up a couple of. I looked up to see if Trump had said anything about Israel. He hasn't like really made any big moves on that yet, but I just found a couple of tweets by him that said, uh, we cannot continue to let Israel be treated with such uh, total disdain and disrespect. Um, they used to have a great friend in the US, but not anymore. This is back before he mm. became president. Um, the beginning of the end was the horrible Iran deal, and now this. Stay strong, uh, Israel. January 20th is fast approaching. I think probably Turnbull's seen this. He's recognised that in order to keep this... Um, Australian-US alliance, he sort of, you know, just needs to, you know, align where yeah. he can. And I think this is somewhere he's just sort of saying, oh, I can kill two birds with one stone here. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I do feel like it's um, a very, like, Temple is in, is between a, a rock and a hard place in many <laughs> yes, senses. Definitely. <laughs> um, so it is a little bit hard I think, you know, he, he's got to deal with Trump. Um, he's got to deal with a, a a party that, you know, isn't necessarily what he wanted to be right now. It's a, it's a party it's, divided. Yeah, it's, a it's, very it's divided party. There's, there's some people who think the rise of one nation means they should go further to the right, and then there's the other people who think, oh, no, but if we go too far to the right, we'll lose all the sort of yeah. moderate centre and that kind of thing. So yeah, they don't know what they're doing with themselves. Um, so I think, um, and then, you know, of course, he's got an opposition, a real opposition yeah. <laughs> outside of his party. Um, so it is, yeah, it's it's complicated. Um, so I feel like it, it, it's been clear that um, that um, Temple is in a bit of a weird space where, where when we've seen him with Netanyahu. Um, but it, it is also, like, I feel like, I mean, I generally tend, and I did interview, this is a bit of a segue with the person who I interviewed yesterday. <laughs> um, it is a little bit um, complicated when, when we discuss Israel um, because, like, um, yeah, there are serious human rights allegations against um against Israel and, you know, to the point where, you know, I feel like there's definitely been a misattribution that everyone who's Jewish or everyone who's Israeli are, you know, always in support of what um, the government does, which is ridiculous because, like, Australian citizens aren't always Mm. in support of what Australia as a government does. So why would Israeli citizens be the same? Um, So I feel like it's important to kind of... I think if, if we're going to trade with any country in general, I feel like we definitely need to ask questions about, like, so, so you know, did, did, did you decide to, like, steal someone else's land? That, that's a little bit, you know, not great. <laughs> um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're unfriendly with that country. And I feel like it's important that 
you know, if we trade with anyone, we like this with we like this with China, we like this with Indonesia, we like this with, you know, even probably America. Mm. But we need to have an open discussion. Have about. a really open discussion yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so, sorry, you just mentioned there um, about Labor providing opposition. That's the, another thing is that they're sort of more digging in their heels about what what they believe in. So, um, at this point, we've had. Uh, two former prime ministers, both Rudd and Hawke, and then also mm. uh, former foreign minister Bob Carr. And I believe Bob Carr was also New South Wales Premier, if I'm not mistaken. Um, fun fact. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, um, uh, the, they've uh, they've all um, said that um, they should recognise um, yeah. Palestine as a country. Um, and also note here that um, that the ALP are still um, supporting a two-state solution, uh, but that the 2015 ALP conference. Uh, said that if there was no progress towards that and it didn't look like it was going to happen, which it doesn't, uh, <laughs> then um, they would um, perhaps look at recognising Palestine. So that's just another division between the Liberal and Labour, yeah. just because of where, yeah. they, where they come on that particular foreign policy issue. And I feel like also um, with people like uh, Shorten and also even more so with um, former Prime Ministers and former politicians, um, They've, he's got much more freedom to be able to kind of, you know, be like, and eh, what are you doing with our Palestinians now? Um, than Turnbull does as well. Yeah. Um, so I think they are um, kind of, you know, living it up that they have the ability to kind of, you know, they don't need to appease Netanyahu right now that much. Hmm. So this visit is historic in itself, but there is an ongoing and drawn out history. That's yet to be resolved, but we're going to go to an interview you did, Julia, with Dr. Nama Karlin, who recently joined protests against the Israeli Prime Minister in Sydney. You were a part of a protest on Wednesday against Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's visit to Australia and talks with Malcolm Turnbull. Why was your protest so important? Well, uh, specifically, we protested outside um, a synagogue in Bondi. Um, we protested Netanyahu's, uh, so the Israeli Prime Minister's uh, vis- visit, which there was a bigger protest on Thursday. But um, our protest specifically was that he was uh, speaking to the Jewish community in a closed invite-only event where there were no critics, no opponents, um, no journalists to ask probing questions. And uh, we wanted to make sure that people knew that not the whole, not all the Jewish community was represented in that meeting. Um, and some uh, resist Netanyahu um, and his position and his politics and his presence in Australia. What specific issues um, are there in Israel and in Palestine that I guess you know, young and progressive Jews in Australia may be at odds with? Well, there's, there's a lot. Um, for, so as, as, a, as a collective, as a group, we each had our own reason for coming to protest. For me, one of the main uh, reasons to come protest was um, the annexation and theft of Palestinian lands. So most recently, a regularization law was passed, which um, pretty much legalizes uh, like theft or annexation of privately owned Palestinian land in the West Bank. I mean, Palestinian in Palestinian territories, which I think, you know, it's completely, he doesn't now didn't try and stop it. He didn't speak out against it. And to my knowledge, Turnbull, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, hasn't said anything about this law yet, um, despite it being very controversial. And hopefully the Supreme Court in Israel 
will reverse it. That's kind of what everyone is thinking there. Um, secondly, there's the human rights and social justice issues. So human rights of infringements on Palestinian rights. They're living under occupation. That means that their everything is controlled by Israel. That means that they, um, their water supply, um, their, their funds have to go, they have to go through Israel. Um, Israel controls their movement. So there's no movement. They, they there's no freedom of movement. So all the basic human rights that people should have are being denied and increasingly denied more and more. It's kind of becoming more and more normal. So these are two huge reasons. Um, yeah, so those are, those are main issues. And of course, Netanyahu in Israel, um, he's facing uh, criminal charges uh, for, on, on several counts in Israel. So he himself is uh, embroiled in various corruption charges. Um, and uh, for me, when my protest was also that a, a prime minister who's facing such such corruption charges really might not need to have the red carpet rolled um, to welcome him into Australia. That's not really progressive and democratic values, I believe. So what are your feelings about how Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and how opposition leader Bill Shorten interacted with Netanyahu? Well, um, I think that they're... That Turnbull and Netanyahu are, you know, they're 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 they're, they're very similar in a way that, in, to my mind, their 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 political service isn't driven by a desire for social justice, but by a desire for power and control. So they, I I, I think that they're. I'm, I'm not surprised by the warm reception that Turnbull has given him. Um, there's just been. There seemed to me to be absolutely no uh, criticism by Turnbull or no scrutiny of Israeli policies, which, as an Israeli uh, citizen, um, I'm, a, I'm a dual Israeli citizen, I find the, 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 the willful ignorance that um, Australian, many Australian politicians have about Israel's policies and Israel itself to just be um, heartbreaking. So I think I understand why Turnbull welcomed him. I think a lot of it is for financial purposes. They're just sort of trying to highlight some some centres in Tel Aviv, and so I think a lot of it has to do with that you know a kind of a history of capitalism and colonialism. Um, they're they're cut from the same cloth there. Uh, as for Bill Shorten, I'm not sure that he's really spoken out about um, the issue of settlements or two-state solutions and settlements. But, you know, I think that Labour is trying to um, articulate ways for Australia to pressure Israel into changing settlement policy and, and sort of other policies with Palestinians. But I don't see the Australian right, and especially Turnbull, pr- pr- putting up any resistance so I think in this visit, Kevin Rudd was uh, the most outspoken one, which was very surprising, but it was also a bit too little too late. As an Australian and Israeli citizen, how do you think Australia should interact with Israel? Well, that's a very good question, and I've thought about it at length. I think that we need to be uh, open to policies that might penalise Israel if it keeps transgressing human rights uh, and not taking heed to UN resolutions or any of the political obligations that it has because as an occupying state, as an occupying force, it has obligations to those that it occupies and it isn't fulfilling those obligations. So I think we need to be open to having a discussion about about that kind of, you know, restrictions. But I also need, think that we need to be very cautious that our criticism of Israel is disentangled from any any questions of like anti-Semitism or, you know, any of that stuff. Like we should be critical of Israeli policy without 
having any, you know, people, a lot of people are, are, they say that if you're anti-Israel, you're anti-Semitic. And I think, you know, as, as an Israeli, I find that incredibly offensive. So we just need to be careful of the nuance in our debate here. But I would like Australia to be a bit more um, rigorously kind of critical of Israel's actions. And, you know, the UN has over and over again criticized Israel um, for its actions. And if, if the UN keeps criticizing you, then maybe you should pause and, and uh, step back and think about what you can do to progress your citizens and the people that you occupy, their human rights and social justice, um, rather than completely ignore it and say, well, they're all, they don't know what they're talking about. So I think it's very complex, but I think, I think Australia needs to be a bit more critical with how it, how it deals with these issues. That was Dr. Nama Carlin speaking to represent assistant producer Julia Pillai. Do you think the Australian government needs to be more critical towards Israel's actions in the occupied territories? Share your thoughts on our emoji poll on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash sinrepresent. You can also share your thoughts on Twitter at sinrepresent. We're now going to go to Karen O with Wrapped. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. And that was Blood Orange. <laughs> Blood Orange by... Um, With You're Not Good Enough. Yes. And that was that, such you, a contribution. And you also heard um, Wrapped by Karen O. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation, the political hour on Sin Nation. And it is time for Pop Chat. Pop Chat. <laughs> Excellent sound. <laughs> uh, so this is where we we talk about um, some of the interesting stuff that you that that's happened over the week that you may have missed out on. Who's going to go first? Um, I can, can if you like. Yeah, you oh, go first. Oh boy, golly golly. <laughs> um, so the thing I wanted to talk about. Um, was about safety injecting rooms. So, essentially, uh, in the year 2016, there were 34 uh, deaths from uh, overdoses um, in the Richmond area. Um, and as a result of these uh, these deaths, uh, a, a coroner, state coroner recommended that the, a safe injecting room be made in Richmond. For those unaware, a safe injecting room is a facility staffed by nurses that provides a safe, uh, a safe rather, safe place to inject uh, using sterile equipment and there's um, medical facilities on site. Um, of the people who back a safe injecting room, uh, uh, the uh, Yarra City Council Mayor Amanda Stone, uh, former Victorian Premier Jeff Kennett and Fiona Patton, who is the leader of the Sex Party and MLC for the Northern Metro, and she actually introduced a bill to create such a facility earlier this month. Um, the bill is currently under debate in the Legislative Council, but it doesn't have any hope of passing because the opposition don't support it, and although earlier in the month, Minister for, among other things, Mental Health, Martin Foley said he was open to it. Um, Daniel Andrews came out a few days ago and said, no, not going to happen, no injecting, safe injecting room. Um, this is a bit of a problem for planning Minister Richard Wynne because his electorate is Richmond, and although Labor have won Richmond at every single election since 1904, uh, <laughs> except for once during the 50s, um, he the last election he won it near, um, really narrowly against the Greens, and the Greens do support the safe injecting room. Um, it's, it's only a margin of 1.9% that he holds that seat, so... This could be the end of Labor's hold on Richmond if, if the safe injecting room becomes a really big issue at the next election. Mm-hmm. What do you yeah. think of the safe injecting rooms? I, I think it should um, absolutely go ahead. I, I, I think yeah, um, a, a place that yeah can provide the sterile equipment and that kind of thing is, is really important. And the number of deaths that could have been prevented, I, I know that um, 
I, I was reading that one of the, one of the people who died um, had children and that kind of thing, and they would still be alive. I know, and those kids would not um, be missing a mother if mm. if that was if that had been built. So yeah, I'm, I'm in support of it personally. Yeah. Mm. Do you want to go first or do you want to do it? Oh, I'll go. <laughs> I'm going to bring up Tony Abbott and not Ooh. Trump this time. Yay! <laughs> um, so former Prime Minister Tony Abbott had an interview with Andrew Bolt um, attacking uh, Malcolm Turnbull saying, why is he living in Piper, his Piper Point mansion and not Kirribilli House, which is costing taxpayers millions of dollars, which is probably justifiable. Um, he made the implication that Foreign Minister Julie Bishop was disloyal and he reportedly spoke with Liberal Party defector Cory Bernardi, saying that he hadn't given up hope of returning to the leadership. Um, so he's got a book launch. Um, he's kind of like got A his sequel to Battle Lines? Oh, boy. <laughs> it's like his new conservative manifesto of sorts, um, declaring the coalition needs to cut immigration, slash the renewable energy target, and abolish the Human Rights Commission. So he's really just come back out with a bang, you know? Um, yeah, go Tony. <laughs> um, so, you know, like, you've done something wrong when, like, Matthias Cormann, um, he spoke out against him, which is surprising because he was in support of him. Um, is he conservative or moderate? Conservative. Yeah. yeah. So when um, it was a leadership spill, he was uh, in support of Tony Abbott and he said that he was sad and self-indulgent. And sad. sad and self-indulgent. <laughs> so, yeah. So obviously he's the former prime minister. He has the right to say what he wants to say um, and he has an opinion on politics. But what do you guys think? He's still a backbencher. It looks a lot like uh, Kevin Rudd, only not. <laughs> yeah. Only not, yeah. I think, yeah, it's sort of like a, a, a stain that's never going to go away, you know what mm. I mean, for Malcolm Turnbull. It's like, as long as he's in Parliament, you know, he, he, he can still, even though he, yeah, he's, he, he's a backbencher, but he's not insofar as, like, all the other backbenchers, like, if a backbencher, you know, I don't know, Ian Goodenough, you know, if Ian Goodenough was like, <laughs> I just needed someone. If Ian Goodenough was like, hey, everyone, I've got a conservative man, no one pay attention, but the fact that Tony is the former Prime Minister, so long as he is there, you know, um, and, and even if he's yeah, a backbencher in quotation marks, he can still be annoying to Turnbull and make it look that like That is a, very true. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, I had a fun week this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this week was made for you. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, um, I know that I have a, a sick um, kind of following. I, I don't, I don't follow them, but I, I kind of stalk and watch what happens with everything. A healthy interest. A healthy interest <laughs> in alt right and Breitbart and Milo. And this was a big, big bad week for Milo Yiannopoulos mm-hmm. and. Um, well, so it began, as all stories do, with um, someone saying something that really probably shouldn't have been said. Um, it kind of so Milo said some Milo Yiannopoulos um, said some comments that basically sounded like he was uh, in support of child sex abuse, which, generally speaking. Um, it's a no-go topic. It's a no-go topic, yeah. yeah. Um, no matter what ideology, usually it's not yeah. like a let's justify and it. And, and it, it seems to be that this is where the um, 
free speech ends. It's here. We might have ended. We might have thought it would end earlier, but it ends here. Mm. Um, so he had a, a huge. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was a. He had a really, really huge book deal with um, Simon and Schuster for. Two thousand, so two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I believe that's U.S. dollars, and that just was kaput after his mm. um, statements. Um, and then after that, he was all like, "Yes," uh, he, he he mentioned on Facebook, like they they stopped my book deal. Um, many memes came, to <laughs> many memes. There was this great meme um, that was like, um, "Roses are red." Um, Trump is a crook. Karma's a bitch. They they've cancelled um, my, my book. My book. <laughs> that's what he wrote. He wrote on Twitter. On uh, Twitter, he doesn't have Twitter because he's been banned from Twitter. But he wrote on Facebook um, that just he just said they cancelled my book. Um, and but this was not. There was more to come. Um, this is not where the story ends. Um, the next day, he uh, resigned from Breitbart. Um, there was allegations that there were people who were writing for Breitbart who were saying, like, if you don't leave or if you don't get fired, we will leave. Hmm. Um, whether or not that's accurate, I haven't found out, but... Well, the fact is, if they stayed, then they would be like, we're happy to be employed by uh, an organisation that also employs people who are, you know, pro-child sex abuse. We're talking about Breitbart. We are talking about Breitbart. Can I just remind you that we're talking about Breitbart? <laughs> okay, all right. It's um, an opinion injected there. Yeah. <laughs> Some opinion and, just, yeah, common sense. Um, Other opinions are available. <laughs> um, so there was a there was a, a big discussion um, about that. Um, so he did a, a big... So Milo had a huge um, press conference and I think at the end he said something along the lines of, but this won't stop me from being offensive or something like that. Um, In other news, I found out that just because, you know, whether or not the book happens... um, he has a very, very, very strong following. I well, he could just do ebook. He could, he could do just himself, do ebook. But like, the thing is, interestingly enough, about ten years ago, under the name Milo Andreas Wagner, he wrote, <laughs> he published, he self-published a book of poetry, and the poetry, well, I have a bit, and it's and a you will bit. play it now. Or um, read it now. This is, I think, it's a part of a larger poem, but it's called Domination. Um, <laughs> Boys came, they took my things, they broke two of my teeth, but they could only beat me up. They could not do me any real harm. That tells a lot (laughs) about his experience. And I... Yeah. (laughs) So he published that so he could publish again. Yeah, he definitely could. I think the he fact doesn't is need a publisher right now. Controversy means website hits. Yeah. Yes, you will always, exactly. You will always find someone yeah. who's willing to. He's and a brand. He's branded himself now. Like he's known. He's and he's sad. I kind of like. I'm not sure because he's definitely said like, you know, it's not the end. Um, so I kind of feel like maybe um, we might have given him too much power. Yeah. But that's a bit scary. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Well. That's all we have time for for Represent this week. You can tune in. (laughs) Have no fear. (laughs) Tune in next week for more political banter. But in the meantime, stalk us on Twitter at C 
Sin Represent and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Sin Represent. We'll be, we'll be keeping you up to date on social media throughout the week and we may have more polls on important issues for you. So keep a look out. I'm Tash. I'm, I'm Julia. Sin. <laughs> <laughs> Sun practice. And you're listening to Sin Nation.